Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The war between Israel and Hamas continues, as uh, has resumed. By the way, just a word about what's going on in this country. If you break the law when you're demonstrating, then you should be dealt with by the police and dealt with by the law. And another word to some of the demonstrators, I want you to think about this. If you were in Israel at the time that Hamas attacked and committed its atrocities, what do you think would have happened to you? And your children, had they been with you, what do you think might have happened? Give it some thought. Ambassador Moe, thank you very much for uh, coming back on the program. Can you uh, share with us, please, what the cause of the resumption of the war with Hamas turned out to be? Was it the rocket fire into Israel and or hostage release issues? Was it a combination of the two? Hello, Roy. Thank you for having me again uh, in your show. I appreciate it very much. Um, and hello to all the listeners. Yes, I think that uh, it's very clear that Hamas uh, actually breached the uh, framework of, of, of whatever agreement we had. And so uh, this firing into Israel meant that they are not interested in maintaining uh, any kind of cessation of, uh, of, of, of exchange of fires, and we are committed to continue to uh, eradicate Hamas, as we are committed also to have all the hostages released uh, immediately and conditionally. And so by, by um, uh, firing at Israel, it was made clear by Hamas that uh, they are not part of any deal, or at least they feel that they have the freedom fired us while while having negotiations take place throughout the countries. This is, of course, unacceptable to us, and uh, therefore uh, we are resuming our uh, activities in, in the Gaza Strip to make sure that all our host- uh, hostages are returned and that uh, Hamas is annihilated. Ambassador Moe, does Israel feel that perhaps support from the United States, from some European nations, maybe Canada as well, is now more qualified than it used to be, and perhaps because of domestic political reasoning, is there concern about that? We feel that we, uh, the international community's support for our actions are as strong as they have been throughout. And it is because uh, we, we, we are fighting a just war. We are fighting against a genocidal terrorist organization. We have to eliminate it. There is no other way but to fully eliminate it. And we are trying to do that while uh, keeping uh, innocent people out of harm's way. And we'll continue to do that, and we'll continue to uh, exert any effort to make sure that uh, people uh, stay out of harm's way. We are using uh, detailed maps for evacuation zones. We are dropping leaflets. Millions of leaflets have already been dropped above the Gaza Strip. 
and we are uh, trying to keep them as safe as possible because we understand that they are there and they will continue to be there. They will be our neighbors and we'll have to find a way in the, in the future to live together under more peaceful conditions. <clears throat> Sorry, but at this po uh, point in time, we are pursuing our, our fight against them uh, with the understanding of the international community that this must be done. And so we are continuing and uh, we will finish Hamas off and we will make sure that uh, Israelis everywhere in Israel will be safe. There has been uh, some news, there's been news reports, specifically in the Wall Street Journal, that Israel may be considering allowing lower-level members of Hamas to leave Gaza as PLO terrorists were permitted to leave Lebanon in 1982. Is there any truth to that? Can you comment on that? There are a lot of rumors being spread around from all directions, and there are a lot of uh, spin doctors busy with all kinds of issues. We are we have only one goal in mind, and goal in mind, and that is to uh, eradicate Hamas, to destroy it, to uh, bring justice to uh, those who were killed and uh, abducted and uh, mutilated and raped and, and uh, hurt by this organization. All of, it, all of its people are responsible, the, the, uh, the leadership, uh, terrorists, the terrorists themselves, all of them are accountable. I uh, suggested earlier today in a segment with our Alberta Chorus radio stations, and you heard me say something like this at the beginning of the segment, Ambassador, that many of the individuals massing to support Hamas in cities in this country and elsewhere should think about this. If they and their families had been in Israel on October the 7th and in the areas of Israel where Hamas was committing its atrocities, these protesters, um, and they willfully failed to consider that the Hamas terrorists would likely have killed them and their families. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. And the proof of that is the fact that they've been holding uh, a lot of hostages that don't have Israeli nationality just because they were in Israel at the time that they perpetrated these attacks. So, yes, they, they don't distinguish between anyone. Uh, no religion, no nothing. As long as not age, not sex, anything, they just... Uh, get what they can lay their hands on, uh, kidnap or kill or mutilate, and that's it. And they terrorize actually the whole world. And when, you, what, when we are looking at what uh, Hezbollah and other organizations are uh, glorifying, and uh, you can understand that it's not just Hamas terrorists, there are many others that are actually uh, very anxious to do the very same. And we can talk about the uh, Houthis in Yemen, who have been uh, shooting at uh, missile, long-range missiles in the direction of Israel, um, kidnap ship, and actually endangering international uh, uh, commercial waters with their actions. Uh, and it's just because uh, they feel that uh, they need to terrorize the world. And so it's not just Israel that is here uh, the target. It's the entire free world, as you just said. Uh, and we have to understand that. And we have to understand also that beyond the fact that they are aiming at the free world, they are actually uh, feel that they get support from people who have no idea what they are supporting. Just to name one example, I think there is an organization here called Queers for Palestine who support them. But I'm not sure whether 
queers for Palestine know that what is the what is the destiny, what happens with queers in in Palestine, and if they want to do anything, they should be helping queers in Palestine and not doing anything else. But that's another issue. Yeah. So, in, in general terms, then, what would you say, Ambassador, to the people of Canada who will this weekend? mass to denounce Israel and cheer on Hamas, regardless of what Hamas did, the atrocities they committed on the 7th of October. It's it's mind-numbing to me that there are people who actually say, well, that was okay. I wonder whether they really have a clue what happened on October the 7th. And and so what would you say to these, uh, to these people, Mr. Ambassador? I think that people need to understand what they are supporting and need to distinguish between support for Palestinians and support for terrorism. And I think the very vast majority of Canadians would not support terrorism had they known that what they are doing by taking action for Palestinians now, they're actually supporting uh, Iranian uh, regime perpetrated terrorism, which is becoming global. Uh, we have seen here among the, the demonstrators people uh, wearing uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and senior. We have seen people <clears throat> wearing green uh, headbands of Hamas, and these are the people who are at the at the uh, center of those of those demonstrations. Actually, um, abusing the fact that people support Palestine. Supporting Palestine is fine. Israel supports Palestine. And we've, we've had, until October the 6th, very uh, elaborate program programs with the Gaza Strip, people coming in, working, uh, merchandise being imported and exported, manufacturing taking place, energy projects. Of course, uh, uh, we were providing energy and water. All of that was happening just before. So um, a support now, actually, support for terrorism is for rape of women, it's uh, of, of mutilation of babies, the, the brutal murder of and discriminate murder, discriminate, indiscriminate murder of, of, of foreigners and Israelis, Jews, Arabs, Christians. This is just horrendous. And when people take action, they have to understand that actually between supporting Hamas and between supporting the Palestinians, there's a huge difference. And that huge difference has to do with our values. As, as Western democracies, as liberal democracies, we have the obligation as citizens to uh, think deeply about what we are doing before we are uh, voicing our opinions. We have the freedom of access to all the information. And the, the information is there. And I sometimes feel that people just, um, you know, browse very quickly through the Internet catch a short phrase, and then go out in support of something that they actually don't support. Mm -hmm. um, I know some people say jokingly that if uh, social media would say that the moon is flat, that people start believing that. And uh, we are talking here about something much more uh, concrete. We are talking about actions, uh, pro-Palestinian actions that become violent, that become uh, dangerous, when it comes to shooting at synagogues, when it comes to the throwing of Molotov cocktails, uh, many of these issues are, are really dangerous, uh, but they also touch on, on more delicate issues. 
inside society about the co- coexistence between Jews and others. And, and, and you know, people feel that uh, Jewish students all of a sudden feel intimidated not going to the university because they feel that the atmosphere is so venomous in their yeah. direction that they just don't want to be there. And oh, I think that's really horrible. So, Ambassador, we have Chuck Schumer, the leader in the U.S. Senate, saying that anti-Semitism in the United States is a five-alarm fire. Is he comment on that, please? I mean, that's it doesn't get any more serious than that. No, it does not. Uh, the the massive uh, rise in anti-Semitic uh, activity worldwide really proves that the direct there is a the direct relationship between extreme anti-Israel discourse and anti-Semitism, and I think that it's clear to uh, Senator Schumer and it's clear to many people around the world. And therefore, uh, there will be also a a big rally uh, next week on this because we understand that all of a sudden, something has has changed dramatically in our societies. Some people, uh, many of us know who are... uh, people with with norms and values that apparently are the same as ours, all of a sudden, when it comes to Israel, fail to understand what Israel is about, what is the reason that Israel was established, what are the roots of the Jewish people that connect them to the Holy Land, and we all of a sudden finding ourselves going back in history many, many years to explain all of that. The Jewish people have a right to the land of Israel, which was promised to Abraham, and from then on, its connection to this land remained uh, unwavering. And so in, in, in the years that followed, in the early 1900s, the late 1900s, the early uh, 20th century, when uh, the Zionist movement was uh, bringing Jews to Israel, to that land that was at that time called Palestine, because Palestine was a Roman name given to that strip of land, uh, it, it is based on the name of uh, Pleshet, uh, invaders, and it has nothing to do with Arabs that mm-hmm. identify today themselves as Palestinians. Okay. Ambassador, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We only have about a minute and a half. Let me ask yes, you this. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. Uh, how does the war with Hamas end? Or is it a war with Iran and its other proxies, such as Hezbollah in Lebanon? Is it just going to continue? My my fear is that this war will uh, precipitate if the international community does not come together and uh, with a very strong message towards Iran and those proxies that this must end and must end immediately. Uh, if this doesn't happen, it will continue and many people uh, will suffer from this. Our intention is to find a solution for our coexistence with our neighbors, with all our neighbors, just like with the Abraham Accords. And so we would like very much to avoid war and conflict. But as long as Hamas is there and as long as Hamas carries that message of repeating the massacre again and again and again, we will fight it until it's full annihilation. Unfortunately, this is the immediate prospect, but I do hope that in the longer future we will get back to a more peaceful time. I do hope so. Christine Sinclair, without question, is a Canadian athlete the entire nation respects. Her final game for Canada will be next Tuesday. Uh, Last night, the legendary number 12 played the 330th game 
Think about that. On Canada's national team against Australia. She's the world's all-time leading scorer with 190 goals. And for next Tuesday's game, BC Play Stadium is being renamed Christine Sinclair Place for one night. Let's talk to our uh, our guests about the significance, the importance, the person uh, Christine Sinclair is. Alison Forsyth, and they're both great athletes. Alison Forsyth, safe sports advocate partner and COO of IP Sport, eight times Canadian ski champion, five World Cup podiums, bronze medal at the 2003 World Championships and represented Canada at two Olympic Games. Hi, Alison. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Good. You got it. Uh, George Pecos, member of the first Canadian men's soccer team to play in the World Cup in 1986. George scored half of Canada's goals to get the team into the World Cup, two of the most important goals in the history of Canadian soccer. George, how are you? Very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's good to talk to you again. George, let me start with you. Put into perspective for us, please, what 330 appearances for the national team really means. Yeah, that's. I didn't know it was that much till till I just heard you say that. My goodness, that's like uh, almost a year, a full a full year of playing for Canada. Like, wow. I was fortunate in my time. I got, I think, around 33 games in, and I thought I had a lot, but 300 more. Wow, it's spectacular. Spectacular. Yeah, it, it just takes your breath away. Allison, the importance and the impact of Christine Sinclair on this, on this country, and particularly young you know, kids and, and young athletes. You know, there's a certain time, you know, it's interesting. I'm actually at a ski race right now, World Cup in Mont Tremblant, Quebec, and I just watched Michaela Schifrin come through the finish. And in my sport, she's that person. So with Christine, it's, you know, once in, I mean, I would say, you know, 50, 100 years, someone will come through the sport like she has and change it entirely. I don't think we can underestimate that. She has changed women in sport. She has changed women participation in sport. She has advocated for female representation in sport. Um, And I honestly think it's because of her that we have such a passion amongst young girls in our country to feel like they can not only make it in soccer, but be respected um, as equal to the men, be paid equal to the men. So there's so much that she has done. It's almost, you know, impossible to give her enough accolades. But at the end of the day, she's changed the game forever for us and for the whole world. So we should be very proud that she's, Canadian. Yeah, absolutely. And and has she added, and I think she, I, I think your answer is going to be yes, but let me go to your specialty, the safe sport reality in this country, because there's been an issue and a very serious issue, uh, particularly over the last couple of years. Christine Sinclair's presence and her, her strength of character and how she carries herself as, a, as an example to other, other young soccer players, other young women playing soccer, has she contributed to that whole environment of this is this is sport. Don't step over the line. Oh, absolutely. You know, as you know, Roy, in safe sport, discrimination is one of our major, you know, forms of maltreatment, and that includes discrimination against women, um, those that identify as such. And I think for, you know, but for me, when I think about her, I just think about solid. That's the word that comes to mind. She's solid. She's she knows who she is. She is probably unwaverable. She just knows what she's out there to do. And I think that's what's really showing the country what is possible is she's not ego. um, She's not glitz and glamour. She's just out there doing the job that you can tell that she loves. 
And that's, I believe, the kind of athlete that we should all aspire to be. Yeah. George, 190 goals in 330 games. 190 goals. You score, you score two goals that nobody will forget in 1986 because it was your two goals that got Canada through the CONCACAF uh, uh, qualification and got the, the country into the World Cup for the first time, again, 1986. But 190 goals, this just boggles the mind, doesn't it? It really does, and and your Allison was well spoken about about what she said about Christine Sinclair. I agree a hundred percent. She's not all about glamour or what. She's kind of like a, a working class hero. Kind of reminds me a bit of myself that where I was working and I became a kind of a working class hero, and I just kept on from there and never. Uh, it never went over my head. I was just a regular guy, just like she's a, a regular woman and gets along with everybody, you know. You know, and 190 goals. The only one that's got a chance of getting to her, I think, would probably be Crystal Cristiano Ronaldo. He's scoring buckets of goals in Saudi Arabia right now. So, yeah, if he continues to play for a few more years, he may pass her, but. Uh, you know, I doubt it. I doubt it. And and of course, we're we're talking national league uh, goals, not um, uh, not just regular league goals for all over the places. Um, yeah, and she's still playing. Forty years old. My God. And I think she's got one year left with Portland in the in the women's league there. And but. But to be able to play at 40 years old and still still get out there and you know lead lead the girls to you know to whatever they need to be and and she's more of a playmaker now. But my hat's off to her. But you know I think she should go into politics. You know she could probably be our next prime minister of Canada for God's sake. <laughs> I, I wouldn't vote against that. Not not a chance. So uh, let me just pick up on the point, Allison, that George made: being able to play at a world class level at 40 years of age any sport mm. what's it yeah take? i mean <laughs> i'm 45 years young here i couldn't imagine but i also think that the beauty of what she has done that entire time is mentorship mm-hmm. so we have to always remember there is you know dozens if not in the 50s to hundreds of young players that have been brought through the system and I work with Canada soccer and I, you know, it was interesting last year we were talking about making sure that our minor players. So athletes under the age of 19 were protected and safe when they were traveling overseas with the national senior national team. And all I remember thinking was, you know, as long as we have Christine Sinclair as on the senior national team, we are just fine. So there's athletes that have been there forever that, you know, they can choose. You choose to either be about yourself and about your ego, or you choose to use the opportunity with your legacy on the team to provide safe and healthy and, you know, inspiring environments for young female athletes to come into. And that's what she's done. And so that's what I will respect more than any of her hundreds of goals, of which I didn't even know about, because I respect her for her leadership and her legacy for what she is doing for these young athletes coming through the program. So well said, both of you. Thank you so much, Allison Forsyth, George Pecos. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank, thanks for having me, and uh, go Canada, go the rest of the way. Now, all the way, all the time. And when George, George. That maybe, George, you know. 
yeah. Canada should retire her number. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. I'm sure that'll happen. That it has might to be happen. a good. Uh, might be a good idea because the odds of someone going to play 300 in so many games, like you mentioned, <laughs> that's going to be that's going to be hard to hard to uh, hard to beat there. Oh yeah, that's that's nobody's going to achieve that. No, fantastic. No way. No just, way. just unbelievable. And and she's a. Uh, like Allison said, she she she's just well spoken, and she's just a regular person. I've got uh, three granddaughters that are that are playing, and and uh, and they just admire her to the most. They were at the game last night, you know, and uh, trying to get autographs, and pictures, and and uh, anyways. I'll 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 leave it there and thanks. No, no, George, George. Nice meeting you and talking to you, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, George, don't go away. I do have to ask you one more question. What's it feel like? Because you scored the two goals that got Canada into the World Cup in 1986. Without you and without those two goals, it wasn't going to happen. And they weren't going to have you on the team at first. Uh, at first, you told us last time we talked. They just called you one day. They had an injury or two. Hey, George, coming up here. And you scored both the goals that got them into the World Cup. What's it feel like to score a goal with that kind of significance? What's it, what's it feel like? Yeah, it's... First of all, I got cut cut from the team in the for the third round, and then I went back to work. Uh, I was the only working person that was working, and I went back to work, and then I got the call to come in, and Dale Mitchell got hurt, and I thought, oh my goodness. Uh, and then sitting on the bench in um, Tegucigalpa, Honduras, I didn't think anything I was ever going to get in the game. And then John Catliff got hurt, and Tony says, George, you're in. And <laughs> and then I end up scoring that goal and then in, as a striker. And then in St. John's, Newfoundland, where the crowd was just fantastic, uh, I got to play again, which <laughs> which I, I kind of laughed to myself, and and then uh, end up scoring that goal to to get us through. And you know, it, it's it's really hard to describe the emotions at that time. That, yeah, I'm sure. You know, the joy for not not only me, my family, my parents, and and all the Canadian people that were you know watching that game. It was it was a moment that. I'll never ever forget and probably a lot of a lot of other people too. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You know, we've talked about artificial intelligence with, among others, Professor Joshua Bencio from the University of Montreal, who's considered internationally to be the godfather or one of the godfathers of AI, and we spoke with the professor about the uh, existential threat that AI may pose to the continued existence of the human race. He doesn't discount it. He does not discount it. There was a letter written and signed by the likes of, uh, I know a lot of people don't like him, Bill Gates, and whoever that guy is who owns Twitter or X. Uh, what's his name? You're supposed to tell me. Go on, tell me. Elon Musk. Thank you. 
They're looking at me in the studio like, what the hell do you want? Elon Musk, I just had a brain fade. Yeah, this is your job to help me out when I get stuck on an intersection. You've got to push me to the curb. Yeah, so over 100 uh, luminaries internationally wrote this letter that AI poses an existential threat to the human race. Because machine uh, intelligence, it, it doesn't know, it doesn't care, it doesn't have emotions. It just says, this was one of the scenarios. Okay, the world's in trouble. There are pandemics, there are wars. There are all sorts of things going on that are a threat to the, uh, the continued you know, existence of the world. Now, who's the problem? And AI may say, oh, now we know, I know, it's humans. So let's get rid of them. And, uh, and this is an actual scenario that's been put forward. It says, we'll create a virus that they cannot fight. And that's one of the scary scenarios that they've talked about. But AI has certainly slithered, there's my word again, into mainstream media. Sports Illustrated being accused of the creation of fake stories written by fake humans. And as I said, that takes us back to the concerns about fake news. And uh, so what do, we do, what do we do about this? What are the issues? So many news organizations have actually now talked about what they will do as far as artificial intelligence modules or options are concerned about how they'll incorporate artificial intelligence into the writing and delivery of news. I was also, also told last night, I was looking for the program actually online, I couldn't find it. But there is a, uh, I'm told there's at least one program, radio program in the United States that's all AI. The host is AI. The topics are, I guess the topics are relevant, news stories, but the host is AI, and then they run contests. They call in contests, and the AI machine actually interacts with the, with the callers. You can't tell. I'm told you can't tell that it's not a human. They actually tell you you got the right answer or the wrong answer, and you've got a prize where you can pick it up. It's uh, it's a game changer. Professor Jane Kirtley, our good friend, professor of media ethics and the law, Silha professor of media ethics and the law at the University of Minnesota joins us. Jane, this is happening so fast. And I said to my, I said to my, my buddies Tom and Matt across the glass, I don't care if AI is an existential threat to humanity. I care if it's an existential threat to broadcasting. But it's, it's not a laughing matter, but it, what, what's, your, what's your immediate... Or visceral, non-professorial response to what's going on. Well, as a confirmed Luddite who loathes <laughs> new technology in so many different ways, to me, you know, this this is the devil incarnate, which is probably a ridiculous position to take. But you know, I, it's it's sort of like when you're making investments and somebody's trying to talk you into buying something or, or buying some stock or getting into some kind of investment vehicle. And my rule has always been, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to do it. You know, I hire people to give me advice, but ultimately, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to do it. And I feel the same way about AI. I, I am not like your professor in Montreal. I am not like the brilliant professor, James Grimmelman, who gave a lecture for us here at the Solar Center back in October, who's both a computer scientist and a lawyer and understands all this. I don't understand it. And it's really uh, a Pandora's box, I think. There are certainly positive things that can come from AI. I mean, I've heard 
heard of examples of it, but there is no doubt in my mind that from a journalistic perspective, the journalism industry has not figured this out. No. And in, to a great extent are just putty in the hands of ChatGPT and other kinds of uh, large language models and machine learning uh, <laughs> toys. Um, and, you know, it's, it's without mixing too many metaphors, um, it's really like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. They're going to start using it, and they're not going to know what they get into. It'll be over their heads. And as you've said, we've already seen this happen. And it's it's... You know, it may not be an existential threat to mankind, but it is an existential threat, I think, to credible journalism. Yeah, be careful what you wish for, right? Uh, so, so let's look at this. And let me ask you then to don your media ethics professor's cape and position. And uh, so, Sports Illustrated is the uh, is the so the cover child on this story now with fake stories by non-existing humans. They're trying to slough it off as being a third-party mess, but. And Sports Illustrated really isn't what it used to be. It used to be a really great sports um, magazine. I, I don't even pay attention to it anymore. It's really slipped that badly. But but it's it's in the news. So what do you make of that? And then what do your what do your students make of what's what's being said about all this? Well, I think as you as for you and many people, sadly, Sports Illustrated has become irrelevant because it comes out so rarely and it's it's full of so much really garbage by their standards and mine. As as you know, specifically what generated all of this is that um, these fake articles written by fake people were primarily what we call e-commerce content. They were, the most infamous example was uh, this totally ridiculous AI-generated articles about volleyballs. And you'd think, why is Sports Illustrated writing about volleyballs? And the answer is because they wanted to sell them later on down the line um, because they're now part of this you know, twice uh, passed along consortium, um, which has, um, you know, as, as its bottom line, trying to increase its bottom line. And they don't care about journalism ethics. They don't even know what that means. And I think it's important to note that putting the journalism aside and just thinking of sort of the strategic communication side of this, this reminds me of the discussions you and I had years ago about so-called native advertising, where real journalists wrote articles about products and so forth in, in a way that looked like it was independent, but in fact, they were being paid by the advertisers to write these articles. And it was a highly debated topic in uh, journalistic circles, in media ethics circles, and even by our Federal Trade Commission here in the United States, which regulates false and deceptive advertising. And, and the writers were saying, this isn't advertising. And the FTC said, you know, who are you kidding? Of course it's advertising. So I guess my point is, I think this is just... 2.0 of this debate, and to try to hide behind the idea that, oh, gee, it's just um, AI-generated stuff for what are basically glorified ads, that doesn't really count. Of course it counts. It goes to the heart of transparency. It, it goes to the heart of accountability and certainly the heart of credibility. And if they can't see that, then they deserve to, to cease to exist, in my view. And I don't say that lightly. I don't want to see news organizations go out of business. But if they're essentially an advertising catalog at this point, I really don't care. Yeah, and the machine's doing all the uh, all the writing and all the broadcasting. I think it's voice. I mean, those radio that radio station story really got my attention. So does, does all of the... I'm not laughing because it's funny, but it... It, it, it gets you going in so many different compass 
uh, point directions at the same time, this, this AI information, these stories. Do you think it actually contributes and feeds the fake news views that we hear in society? I do think so, um, as if we needed more of this. I think there, I mean, let's face it, there are bad actors out there. There are careless people out there who knowingly or inadvertently share falsehoods. But now we're dealing with a an entity that does not think. As you said, it simply processes all the material it's gathered through the various large language model. It spews out a story. Um, you know, famously, it's known to what's called hallucinate, which basically means makes things up. As a lawyer, this is becoming a big issue in the legal profession because people are filing legal pleadings that have fake legal citations in them for cases that don't even exist. Um, it's a similar problem, obviously, in journalism. And if you already have a public that is disposed to think that the media make things up um, to fit a particular narrative, this just plays into it all the more. It, I mean, we are we are so lazy, so careless, so unaware that we will use something like uh, ChatGPT to generate stories without knowing or caring whether it's accurate or not. I mean, this, this is horrible. I, as I said, existential threat to journalism as I see it because it simply plays into the idea that the news media should not be trusted uh, for a whole variety of reasons, and this is just the latest one. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's appalling and, and really scary to me going forward. Yeah, we already have millions of people who will see something on social media, and because they agree with what they see and hear and read, that makes it fact. It doesn't make it an opinion. Because they agree with it, it makes it a fact. And that's a, that's a deep concern because then if you're exposed to an, an, an ever-increasing AI reality, then, yeah, you could be manipulated easily as a consumer. What are your students saying? Well, I think I would say it splits into two parts. In terms of the students, in terms of you know wanting to get through assignments quickly, not so much in journalism, but in other areas, they love ChatGPT, and it doesn't matter how much we warn them about how inaccurate it can be and how stilted it is in terms of the way it writes. Anybody that's looking to cut a corner, they're going to go to chat GPT unless they're explicitly ordered not to. But on the other hand, I think the journalism students also recognize that the profession they're hoping to enter is already in peril and that if they're going to embrace chat GPT, they may also embrace the idea that they will have no jobs going forward. As I mean, as you said in the Sports Illustrated example, one of the reasons this is happening is because Sports Illustrated has cut its staff so drastically. Same thing with USA Today. Same thing with any number of media outlets that are struggling with this and trying to figure out how to harness this technology in a way that doesn't basically mean that they're selling their souls. So I think, at least in the journalism school, there's definitely uh, a mixed set of views about ChatGPT. Yeah, we, we can't ever adopt the, uh, the attitude, Jane, that, oh, they'll never notice. They, they'll never notice. They, they're already on, the, on social media all the time. They're on the Internet, on search engines. They just go, they being the, all of us, the euphemistic they, um, they'll never notice because they're already, uh, they've already bought into, uh, you know, Google and, and, uh, and X, which is owned by that other guy, whose name I couldn't remember. Um, Musk, yeah. Mr. Musk. Mr. Mr. Musk. And uh, so, so the the attitude could be, oh well, the, the, nobody, nobody will notice, nobody, nobody will care, or even worse, nobody will care. 
And I think there there is some truth to that. But, you know, one of the things I try to tell my students is, you know, what you have to offer to the world is credibility, you know, painstaking fact-checking, mm-hmm. um, accuracy. And let's face it, whether you're in broadcast or print media, good writing, you know, good analysis, yeah. all of which ChatGPT is terrible at. Yeah. So, again, don't sell yourself short by using these tools. It's, it's just lazy. You know, I, uh, I, don't, I don't toot my own horn, horn, horn in this program. But you talk about getting ready, getting prepared, do, do what you need to do, do your due diligence, do your, do, your, do your research, respect your listeners in my case. I started working on this program that airs at 2.05 p.m. Eastern time and then different time zones across the country. I started working on it at 2.45 this morning. That's when I started on it. And uh, that's what it takes. You just have to be, you have to make the commitment that you're going to learn what you're talking about, not insult your listeners, provide, provide my own perspective, which sometimes gets fired at, which is all right. But that's what it takes. And if you just feed some, you know, information into a, into a, into a, a machine learning thing, and that's what you're going to get back. You'll get back what the machine learning thing figures based on the parameters it's been programmed by, what it ought to offer you. Professor Kirtley, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so very much for today. Thank you, Jane. It has been a real pleasure for me, Roy, and, and please do take care. Professor Eric Cam, Professor of Macroeconomics at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Let me just say this before we get into all of this and what we're going to talk with the Professor Cam about, just got another text uh, for, uh, to one 9898 from a listener in uh, Alberta. Here's a, a list of athletes. Brian Budd, George Chevallo, Mark Messier, George Reed, the great number 34, with the Rough Riders in Saskatchewan. And then he writes, Mike has it. Number one is Terry Fox. Yes, sir. So, uh, Professor Cam, I know we're going to talk finances. We're going to talk the economic realities this country is facing. But do you want to get at the uh, whole idea of uh, your favorite hockey player, the athlete you most admire? You know, hi, Roy. Yeah, I was thinking as you were having that segment that I like to chime in on sports a little bit. Sure. And give you two other names that, uh, look, from my youth, of course, you know, Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, and Guy Lafleur were my Mount Rushmore. And I love them and, you know, they'll always have such such a special place. But as I got older, I started to understand the value of volunteerism and what it means to lead your country when you don't have to. And so for me, the two players that come jump out at me uh, will forever be Joe Sackick and Jonathan Taves, who not only were multiple Stanley Cup winners, but were multiple gold medal winners for Canada. And one, they got paid for and paid well, and I have no problem with that. But when it comes to the Olympics, that's effectively volunteerism. And we know, even going back to 1972, it wasn't always that Canadians were dying to play for their country. So I think about Sackick and Taves as just two examples of players that I would call Captain's Canada. Yeah. I'm going to mention somebody who never played for Canada, but and I tweeted about him earlier this week. He's the great... Um, uh, Rice, what's, what's his first name? Um, the Boston Red Sox. Just oh, first Jim name, Rice. Jim yeah, Rice. You, it just disappeared. You? So Jim Rice, uh, they're, they're, you know, superb player, only played for the Red Sox. A, a little boy was hurt um, during a game, and Jim Rice got through the fence to get to the kid because the emergency workers couldn't have gotten there in time, picked him up, 
got him back into the dugout. The Red Sox medical crew started working on the little boy. They got him to the hospital. They saved his life. He became a very successful businessman. But at the time, his family was not very well off. They didn't have the money to really pay for all the treatments the little boy wanted. And Jim Rice paid the whole medical bill. I was so glad you posted that because, as you know, I love sports history and sports trivia. I remember that event. He never got the credit he deserved as a humanitarian or a baseball player. And we could do two segments or three on what I think of the Baseball Hall of Fame and why it shouldn't even exist as it is now because it's neither a hall nor fame because the best baseball players of the last 30 years aren't in it, including Jim Rice, who should have been in that Hall of Fame 30 years ago, Roy. I'll take you another one. We'll get to, we'll get to the economy momentarily. The Canadian or the, the, the Hockey Hall of Fame. The, the fact that Paul Henderson is not in the Hockey Hall of Fame is an absolute shameful reality. It's the Hockey Hall of Fame, not the Hockey Hall of Lifetime Achievement. And he was a great hockey player. He wouldn't have made that 72 team if he weren't. But he scored the winning goal in all three of the last games against the Soviets in 1972 when this country was sitting on the edge of the wherever you were sitting, and biting your nails, and the whole country just went berserk when he won the winning, uh, scored the winning goal in, in game eight. He's a good, good person. I'm going to say this. I'm, I'm, I've never told this story. I'm going to tell it really briefly, just what kind of person Paul Anderson is. When my wife was dying of cancer, he called me every day, every single day. Paul Henderson called me at home. And he's, he's been battling cancer for a long time himself. Every single day, Paul called me to see how Liana was and how I was. I can, I, I'll never forget. And the fact, uh, Eric, that he's not been inducted into the Hall of Fame, that entire team should be in the Hall of Fame, but most certainly Paul Henderson, because the guy he scored the winning goals on, Vladislav Treciak, he's in the Hall of Fame. Not just that, Roy, because I agree with you 100%, but since we got into this, um, again, a humanitarian, a hockey player, I don't think a lot of people listening today understand what that 72 series meant. I thought of it this week with the passing of George Kohan, the person who effectively brought capitalism to Russia. And that 72 series brought the marriage of hockey in Canada to hockey in the Soviet Union. And Paul Henderson was its star. There's two things criminal. Number one is he's not in the Hall of Fame. It is not the NHL Hall of Fame. It's the Hockey Hall of Fame. And number two is what I'm really dreading, Roy, is he's going to get in one day, God forbid, posthumously. Yes. And that will absolutely break my Canadian heart. Yes, indeed. And I've asked him, do you know where those sticks are? That you scored those winning goals with? Do you know where the sticks are? He knows where one is. You know, actually, I think he knows where two is. He has one. I think one of his grandchildren has another one, but he has no idea where the third one is. Hey, Roy. Yeah. Just a quick story for you about Team Canada. Sure. Last year, last year for my daughter's birthday, we went to a very popular establishment that serves steaks and has three letters in its name. And at the table beside us was, um, who was it? Uh, Frank Mahovlich. 
And I said to my dad, I said, I got to do this. I waited till Mr. Mahovlich finished his dinner, paid his bill, and he was standing up. And I went over to take a picture. And I said, would you mind? And he said, no, I'd be honored. And he looked at me and he said, how do you know me? And I said, my God, you're Frank Mahovlich. And he said, I don't find young people know their hockey history anymore. And I, I, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry because at the time I was 55 years old and I wasn't young. But does anybody go to a restaurant and not know Frank Mahovlich or Paul Henderson or Ken Dryden? I mean, I guess because they're the heroes of my youth. I mean, we could just do this all day. But please, one day, let's start a petition. Get Henderson in the Hall of Fame while the man is still on the planet to enjoy it. You know, I worked on that on the air for years. I had Paul on the air. He, I think he's resigned now to the fact that there's there's some movement within the uh, within the uh, the judges and the uh, the nominated the nominators. There's something that's just not right. It's like it it smells. Well, Paul Anderson is not in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Let me just tell you one more quick story. And I, I may have told this before, but don't stop me because if you've heard it before, because I want to hear it again. Um, I, was, I was a kid. I just started out in radio. I was 16 years of age and uh, I was spinning records. That's before I got on the air, which happened three weeks after I started in radio. But, uh, but there was a story in Montreal. I was in Montreal. The Jean Beliveau was on the trading block because Sam Pollock was somehow not happy with the way Beliveau was playing. Number four, this is the legend, the, the legend. And I wrote a 16-year-old's version of an indignant letter, Eric. And I sent it to, um, I sent it to Sam Pollock. And I sent another copy of it to Jean Beliveau. I got their address through however I did it. And, and I self-importantly wrote something like, I'm in the studio at CKGM was the radio station at the time. These hours on the weekend and I expect to hear from you. To Pollock, right? I don't hear from Pollock. But I'm in the studio one morning just spinning the discs and the phone rings. And I pick it up and I say, hello. And I hear that voice, Mr. Green, please. And I said, oh, my God. Oh, my God, it's him. It's him, and it was him. And he said, I just wanted to call, and thank you so much for the courtesy of your letter. Thank you so much. And, uh, and then he was gone. I thought that was such an incredibly generous thing to do, and it really helped me for the rest of my life. It taught me a lesson. It taught me a lesson for life. I know that some people don't like meeting their heroes, but I do. Um, but that notwithstanding, you can meet them. You can, you know, as you get older, they get older. But those people, and I know you know exactly the people I'm talking about, they, will, they, were, they are immortal in your mind forever. When we lost Bossy and Lafleur in oh, one week, yeah. it took, I mean, I, I actually did cry because that's what I do when I lose my heroes, but they're immortal. And whether I meet them or I don't, it doesn't matter. They're larger than life. And I want them to stay that way because I don't care how old you are or what generation it is, Roy, um, young people need heroes. And mine shot pucks and threw footballs and baseballs. And so I love each and every one of them. 
and I just let them be immortal in my mind. Okay, I can't stop now. We're going to have to take a break, but I have to tell you this story. 1972, same year, I'm working in Calgary. I'm just a kid. I just, you know, my very early 20s. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm working at CHQR Radio. And Muhammad Ali, I'd just gotten his boxing license back after being suspended for three years because he wouldn't go to uh, fight in, in Vietnam. And so he was touring North America, and he was fighting these palookas. Uh, two or three fights every night, wherever he went, three rounders, boom, 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 the guys were gone. So he comes into the radio station, it was all arranged. He went in and Roy Jacks, who was a television personality at the time, as well as doing radio, he was the host and Ali went in and it was all set up. Ali and he were going to argue about things and then Ali was going to say at some point, I'm out of here, I'm not putting up with this. While this is going on, and I've been an Ali fan since grade 10, Eric, at this point, and I get to talk to Angelo Dundee. And uh, who's his legendary manager. And he's telling me stories about Ali. And I'm just, I'm just answering. Like he, he knew very quickly that I really know what I was talking about when it came to Ali. And Ali came out of the studio. Now, I'm 6'1". And at the time, I probably weighed about 225 pounds. I'm about around 235, 240 now. And, uh, but he came out of the studio. And, and so I'm a big guy. And he was a couple of inches taller than me. And he was lighter than me. He was, I think he was around 215. And we shook hands, and I looked at him, and he said, he said to me, no, you couldn't. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking, he's not that big. Maybe if I put on gloves, <laughs> I could take this guy. And he just looked at me, and he said, no, you couldn't. I'm Roy, sure he had that encounter thousands of times. He was my hero. If I have a sports hero, it's Ali. And if my father was, my father is with us, he's 79 years old, doing well. And this conversation of greatest athletes, favorite athletes, my father has no time for it. He says, the answer is Muhammad Ali. Drop the mic, conversation over. Right on. You told us uh, last weekend that Canada's economy is in the worst situation that it's been since 1929. And I'd like you to follow up on that, please, with us. And it's interesting because um, Global News Reporting, Canada's economy shrank in quarter three data shows, but no technical recession, say the, uh, the experts. So just, just tell us what's going on. What's going on is a lot of negative numbers, Roy. Um, I, I pulled them off the Statistics Canada webpage this week for people. And just, you know, here's the, here's the greatest hits. GDP growth rate, annual growth rate, current account, which is the trade balance, government debt to GDP, government budget all negative, all heading in the wrong direction, which tells you that whether you're a demand side person or a supply side person, the economy is shrinking. Any excess demand that had been built up over the last 20, 30 years of low interest rates is effectively gone. And so when you combine that, for me, with the expectations of very slow, if any, job creation to support the labor force, it makes you wonder, what's the growth driver? What does this government believe they've put into place to drive the economy. And to me, I can only see one thing, and it's immigration. Now, I'm all for immigration, but as, an immig as a growth driver, Roy, as a growth strategy, it's a loser every time. And so I said that last week, and I guess now we're looking good because people have jumped on it and they're, they're saying that I was right, is just that when you look at any of the macroeconomic statistics or variables or leading indicators, they're all negative. So I don't know what people want to grab onto when they want to see some positives. You asked me last week, where are we going to be in a year? Mm -hmm. I think we're going to be here. 
with lower employment. That's where I think we're going to be because, as I said, this is not a physics lab. Economics takes time to work. And right now, the only thing our government has its pedal to the metal is on the green initiative and what's going on at that COP or whatever it is, which is all very interesting, but not helping anybody living in their car, Roy. No, it isn't. And the fact that Canadians, Canadian families uh, have to choose between shelter or among shelter, food and clothing because they can't afford all three. And Canadians are telling pollsters they don't have a great deal of optimism about our economy improving. You have that psychological impact as well. How much does that, how much does that uh, matter? It matters huge. It's what doesn't get talked about. The psychological scarring effect of unemployment and poverty and displacement. It is absolutely huge. And I'm actually glad you brought it up because we can throw around numbers all day. Right now, luckily, it takes very little to find a bunch of negative numbers that reflect our economy. But I'd like people to remember, I'll tell them what I tell my students. Economics is a social science. It's about people. And so when you see negative numbers, those negative numbers, what they are really are hungry kids, homeless people, people that can't pay their rent, people that can't put food on their table. That's what those negative numbers are. And for some reason, our liberal government is ignoring this completely. And again, when people say to me, why do you support Mr. Polyev? Do I think he's perfect? No, but he's the only person talking about these things. And right now, that's one better than the prime minister. Yeah, and it's scary, too, that we have uh, provincial governments literally, well, almost literally at war with the federal government. We have the premier of Alberta, and we'll be speaking with one of her senior ministers tomorrow about this, uh, describing the uh, Trudeau government as, quote, lawless, end quote. And Stephen Gilbo is going on in, uh, in uh, Dubai as though he's got everything under control. No, he's not. Mr. Gilbo should be removing himself from, from his ministerial duties because he's just a, he's, he's a, such a negative impact on, on, on people's confidence. And no, nobody, I shouldn't say nobody, but most of the people I talk to don't listen to him anymore. They have no time to listen to him. They should listen to Scott Moe. He's on your show. Yeah, he is with us quite a bit. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. and he says, at some point, I'm just going to have to start making my own rules because the prime minister's rules are killing average families. And he's yeah. 100% right. And I, maybe because they've just thrown their cards in the table and they know that it's over. But for some reason, the prime minister and his group just do not seem to be responding to any of the economic incentives that exist right now. And I think that's criminal. You know, all we have to do really is wait until the 1st of January because uh, Bill 151 in the Saskatchewan legislature now gives the option to uh, their power um, uh, administrators, I don't want to call them bureaucrats, to not collect the carbon tax and, uh, and they're protected by the legislation. So the Premier, Premier Mo, is taking uh, Ottawa on head on and uh, Premier Smith is not far behind. Dr. Cam, it's always a pleasure today particularly. Thank you so much. Premier Ford's not far behind either. Stay healthy, Roy. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.